0: Just launch in with you know, welcome to the podcast kind of thing. So we can just start okay. from there. Does that so, work for so you? You'll just do
1: that. Yeah. Isn't no, the, I want I, no, I want to hear everything you're going to say about me, no, just kidding. Well, I can
0: tell <laughs> you that she's cooler than sliced bread. And um, <laughs> That's on not and very on. cool,
1: Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's that's about right. I'd yeah. say <laughs> that's, that's where I that's where I sit on the coolness scale. <laughs> to the woods and hand.
0: That is between us, and to us and how we live between the words. We are so happy and excited to have Barbara Kingsolver on the program today, author of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, critical commentary, and journalism. She has received so many awards, uh, including being named one of the most important writers of the 20th century by Writer's Digest. And personally, I'm thrilled to have Barbara on the podcast. Barbara's life and work has inspired and touched me profoundly. I'm deeply grateful to call her a friend and a creative companion and a knitting buddy over these many years. Uh, she's published many luminous works, including *Unsheltered*, *Flight Behavior*, *The Lacuna*, *Animal Vegetable Miracle*, *Small Wonder*, *The Poisonwood Bible*, and many, many more beautiful books. Uh, today, we'll be talking about her writings, the creative process, her activism, and and reading from her newest book of poetry, *How to Fly in Ten Thousand Easy Lessons*. Welcome, Barbara.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: And I want to welcome you as well. I know that Carrie's always been a huge fan of yours, and you have a couple big fans here at the Palmer House in Madison, Wisconsin. So it's very, very good to meet you and have this chance to talk.
0: Thank you. Well, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things on the program today about creative process and The kinds of themes that run through your work, but I think we're going to focus today a bit on your newest book, which is a luminous book of poetry called "How to Fly in Ten Thousand Easy Lessons," and it's just a beautiful book. I've just loved it so much, and I love the title. I mean, thanks,
1: Carrie. You know, titles are always um, this this hurdle you have to get past marketing. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> but we did. We flew past.
0: It's a beautiful title, but it's, there's also a little bit of, of Rhinus in that, in 10,000 in 10, mm-hmm. easy mm-hmm. lessons. Ten thousand, ten
1: thousand, 10,000, if not 10 million easy lessons. You
0: know, there are so many poems in this book that I, I've just sat with and really just loved and appreciated, but we, we thought we might start with a uh, one of the poems, and and have you actually read it for the listeners here. Okay. Um, we, we were thinking of uh, having you read that The title, title poem? The title sure. poem. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's okay. beautiful.
1: How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons Behold your body as water and mineral worth, the selfsame water that soon, from a tree's way of thinking, soon, will be lifted through the elevator hearts of a forest, return to the sun in a leaf-eyed gaze, and the rest, all wordless leavings, the perfect bone-white ash of you, light as snowflakes, falling on updrafts toward the unbodied breath of a bird, Behold your elements reassembled as pieces of sky, ascending without regret, for you've been lucky enough. Fallen for the last time into a slump, the wrong crowd, love, you've made the best deal. You summited the mountain, or you didn't. Anything left undone, you can slip like a cloth bag of marbles into the hands of a child who will be none the wiser. Imagine your joy on rising, repeat as necessary.
2: Barbara, I love that poem a lot. And I will tell you that it has a particular meaning for me. Uh, Here, I sit at age 82 and I think a lot about flying and falling and then flying and falling and doing Mm -hmm. it again and again, exactly as you portray that great cycle uh, in this poem. And I'd love to know how you, how you think about that as you reflect on the poem y- yourself. For me, it's, it's, it partly comes out of your background in science and my understanding of, of how nature is constantly recycling. Um, no more or less atoms uh, with us today than were present at the Big Bang. And the line, yeah. of course, about the, the trees, the elevator hearts of a forest, and I especially like the fact that I heard you say on, in one interview that this poem is, is your answer to those hard questions our children ask us, why we're here, what happens when we die, and what's the point of everything. Um, I'd love to hear you uh, riff on those thoughts for a while.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, This this um, this poem is basically... The distillation of everything I believe. Um, that's, it's sort of my, my religion in a nutshell. It's the answer to all of those questions my kids asked me, um, when they were little and when they were bigger about, um, what happens when we die and what's the point of everything. And, um, it's, it's, it's the best answer I can give. Um, this is really good news. Your carbon. Your water, your uh your your things that never die. Um you are a part of something that has always been here and always will be here. And um and that's um when you if you can step back from it and look at those those enormous cycles that we're a part of, um it's a beautiful thing and it's also uh, kind of a kind of a relief, isn't it? It's a lightness of being to understand that um, this whole deal is so much bigger than we are. You know, I have to
0: tell you, Barbara, that um, I took this book uh, on a vacation that we did with uh, a couple other couples uh, on Lake Michigan. And every and I put the the book on the table, um, on the kitchen table, and every morning we would Uh, Kind of rise and someone would read a poem. Um, It was just such a wonderful way to start the day Uh, Though as the week went on we had to like track down the book because people would take it and go like curl up (laughs) with it somewhere, you know, but um, And this poem this poem was really uh, had, you know, brought about a beautiful conversation this idea of the rightness of the natural process that there is something, you know, true and right, and
1: that we collaborate with it. Um, and it's beyond our control. Um, I think it's, it's, it's awfully good for humans to, to remember, if we possibly can, that um, we are subject to the laws of nature. We don't make those laws. <laughs> we think we do, or we behave as if we do, um, as if we really do rule the world and run the world. But we don't. And, um, and I think there's, uh, there's both comfort and responsibility in remembering that we are, we belong to the world. It doesn't belong to us. Ultimately, uh, we have these carbon atoms, um, and, and all this hydrogen, um, and, and, and silica and magnesium and everything on loan, but it doesn't really belong to us. It's going back. It will, uh, it will show up later in all kinds of other places.
2: Yeah, I, and I, I don't, uh, when I think about aging, which I think about a lot, I, I can't think of anything worse to drag into your elder years than the kind of self-centeredness that says, I am all, I am the world, I am the point of everything. And I can't imagine a bigger burden to take into old age. And it, for me, it's been a, a, a couple of decades of gaining perspective. And a lot of that has come from the natural world and learning, you know, how insignificant I am, and yet how at home I feel in that in that setting. So I think I understand what you mean by this is your religion, this is your spirituality. Uh, I feel a lot of that too.
1: You have a generation on me, but I'm already old enough to know that Um, I'm not everything. And I think that, uh, and I'm really grateful to my, to my, to my family. I have two daughters who are millennials. Um, and one of them has two kids who are little, uh, toddlers and they're all in my life in an everyday way. And it's, um, it's so clear to me that they know things I don't and that, um, tomorrow's problems are going to be solved by them instead of me. And um, it's an interesting generational shift I've seen in my lifetime uh, from the presumption that elders know everything. And I mean, elders know a lot. But in an ever-shifting world, there are also ways in which elders know almost nothing. Um, And I find again, I find it comforting and and a great relief to understand that I don't have to know everything. And the problems that keep me awake at night, um, uh, while I can I can apply myself to them to their solutions, it's not all on me. It may not even possibly be on me. Um, It's again, it's a part of that that. That process of, of letting go of um, uh, you know imagine your joy on rising and, and I think too I, I think that when you
0: have an opportunity to to be around young folks and the the millennials and their and and their concerns and their solutions you know it's like I, I've had people say I'm just concerned that they're not showing up you know that that the banner we've been marching with won't be won't be carried any farther and but you know it's just
1: that they, they may, have whole
0: new banners
1: which they have to have yeah um yeah I'm uh I have enormous respect for for a generation of people who are coming up in a world that they they really understand in a different way um uh, from my generation, they, I think, you know, a lot of us grew up being told you can be anything, you can have anything, you can, I mean, whether or not this was a practical possibility or not, it's something we were, we're sort of bred to believe in, um, the the possibility there will always be more, there will always be fish in the sea. Well, these kids coming up know better. There will not always be more. They've, they've, um, They've, they've come of, of age with a with like this intuitive understanding of limits of um it, you know limits to resources uh, um, that there can't always be more and you know I just in all kinds of practical ways well, I'm my, uh, one of my daughters just decided she's she's never going to buy any new clothes again, and so she, you know, she's very resourceful. Yeah. We live in a, a rural place; we don't have you know like Buffalo Exchange on every corner or any corner, but you know there are all these websites, and you can get anything used. And yeah. so then she, you know, extended from her wardrobe into kind of everything in life. Um, and I just think, wow, that's a whole different paradigm of just. Uh, applying yourself to not using anything up.
2: I was really interested, Barbara, in a line in in How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons, where you say, anything left undone, you can slip like a cloth bag of marbles into the hands of a child who will be none the wiser. Uh, and that I love the ambiguity in that phrase, none the wiser, because there's mm-hmm. a sense in which they have no idea what we're handing off, Mm-hmm. Uh, either its limitations or its possibilities. And there's another sense in which if we we are willing to hold bags like that precisely because we don't know what they're going to imply down the road, you know. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. any number of people in their older years who, who will say, gosh, if I knew what I was getting into when X, Y, or Z, I never would have done it, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering how those words resonate for you
1: well exactly I mean that's 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 what I love about poetry um, um is language and how and particularly in poetry i mean i'm I'm mostly a novelist um but my my real love is language, and i even i write novels as very extended poems because I just i really I really need to um, sort of work on every sentence and taste it and hear it and and remodel it and then fit it into the sentences adjacent and just think about um, language and words and how every word carries its own particular weight um, um, and um, um, taste and meaning. And so it was... Such a it was almost like a vacation when I decided I was my next book was going to be a collection of poems because I could just forget about you know plot and character and you know the sort of (laughs) the onus of making a story that's going to hold up for four or five hundred pages and just work a sentence at a time, a phrase at a time, and just really get in there and roll around with my uh, adoration of language. So that's what you can do in a poem. You can slip it like a cloth bag of marbles into the hands of a child who will be none the wiser. And, um, you know, it might take a morning to come up with that phrase. It might take a week. But then when you've got it, you've got it. And it's not that I've got it. It's that I can give it to you and you can make of it all the things that you want to make of it.
2: Yeah, it, exactly. It's like I'm now holding that cloth bag of marbles. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And you just, it, and it just, it invites you to think about all the different ways that we are none the wiser.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and this,
0: there's such a joy in language. I think one of my favorite um, little bits of uh, Barbara' advice is the first paragraph of a. A novel makes a promise that the rest of the book keeps, probably paraphrasing. But at some point well, you that's said perfect. <laughs> but at some point you said that to me. And I thought, oh that's yeah. like the first verse of a song. You yeah. know? That there's like a certain kind of uh love and attention to how the language unfolds. Yeah, and definitely the all these poems have that quality, this this quality of promise um.
1: yeah i i I thought actually carrie about that very thing when i was um when i just gave myself the luxury of spending a year writing poems and uh revising poems and pulling out old ones and just thinking about poetry i asked myself that question if it's the first sentence or the first paragraph of a novel what is what is it in a poem and i think it might be the title Mm. um but somehow or another. You have to embed that promise in the beginning. I, I mean, I really believe in promises um, because I believe in accessibility as a, as an artist, as as you do. I know. Um, I make art to be to be uh, wash and wear. You know, I want it to be used. I don't want it to hang in a closet and you know people to be scared because they have to take it to the cleaners. Um, <laughs> I I really want people to to get it and with poetry that's tricky. You know, a lot of people I've I've encountered a lot of people who say who were you know very disappointed to hear I was writing a book of of poetry because they said I don't read poems. And which is surprising because in a you know in an attention deficit economy you would think people would read the shortest thing available. Well, I guess they do and that's tweets, but but poems, you know, you'd think would at least be in the running, and people, you know, told me again and again, it's because I just don't understand it. I don't understand poetry, and so um, I thought, well, you know, depends on the poem. If you read Billy Collins, you know, if you know, you'll probably understand it. Uh, if you read Mary Oliver, you'll probably understand it. Um, I can name, you know, eighteen poets that you probably wouldn't understand a word that you read because i don't either um but i'm not going to name names um so as an accessible writer i wanted i wanted this poetry to be you know comprehensible while it while still uh doing its work as poetry which is really to i guess kind of lift the lid off your analytical brain and let you make associations that you don't normally make in your everyday life. I mean, that's something that poetry can do, right? It's sort of, it, it can, and I think for me, poetry sort of explodes my brain and it also soothes me both at the same time because it's giving me associations that I get to do with as I like. So it's very, you know, it's very gratifying in that way. I get to make something that's just all mine out of poetry. But you have to make, you have to at least put some signposts in there. And I think that for me, the title is a big part of it. It's like, look, okay, look here. Here's what the poem is about <laughs> in some way or other. So you won't get lost. Um and, um, you know, maybe maybe you still will, but that's okay. you get to lose your own way in you know in, in however however you please.
2: I'd like to explore that resistance to poetry that's out there. Um, mm-hmm. I've run into that in my work as well because I've used poetry for 50 years in my retreats and in my teaching and and some of my favorites are your favorites too. I just learned. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm wondering, if, I'll trot out an old cliche first. It was ruined for a lot of people in college English classes where they, the teacher dissected the cadaver and kept asking, what does the poet mean by this rather than what does this mean to you, which is the sort of existential question. So there's that. But setting that aside for a moment, I'm, I'm wondering if there are just a lot of people who don't want to slip through the cracks of conventional understanding the way a poem invites you to do who 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 are resistant to the subtlety of insight and the fact that a poem takes you someplace unconventional in many instances
1: yeah resist yeah, resistant because we've been trained against that, I think we've you know resistant because we haven't learned how to give in, you know, to, to ambiguity. It's, well, for one thing, we live in a culture that's really sort of the enemy of ambiguity. What do we want in our, in our leaders decisiveness? You know, if someone flip flops, that's like the worst thing you can say about, you know, a leader or a, you know, sort of a moral person. When as a matter of fact, to me, Changing your mind is the mark of, of a thoughtful and moral person. It means you can take new information and, you know, adjust yourself. But, um, you know, culturally we are conditioned against that and as you said, there's this terrible thing that happens not just in college English classes, not just in high school English classes. I think it starts even sooner. Um, that notion that literature is there's a one-to-one correspondence between you know what the author wrote and what you are supposed to believe and or think. And I mean, you wouldn't believe how often I get letters that are like, you know, settle this argument. You know, that happened in my class. My teacher said you meant this and I think you meant this. Which is it? And my answer is it's whatever you think. I the book is yours. I when I when I make when I make art, I consider it half done. I mean when I'm totally finished and send it off to the publisher, that artwork is half finished. The completion happens again and again and again with every person who reads it because and that's a beautiful thing about literature it's a different experience for every soul who takes it in because we bring our own experience right to what we read so um in a novel for example we we make we and we 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 see those characters in our mind's eye so we get to build them you know out of the building blocks of people we've known and loved or people we've known and hated if they're the villains or people that we just saw one time and found intriguing we each of us gets to invent the whole fabric of that world with our own specific images and that's the art that's the art that thing that happens in a brain and i love that it's different in every single brain there's no other there's no other art form that i know of that's really quite that flexible and and it's the reason why when you read the book and then you go see the movie the movie's always wrong because yeah. it's not the picture you had in your head that's that's the right one so um so we do we have this sort of I mean, even if we know how to do that when we read books, if the minute we start to sort of dissect and analyze, as you say, um, and sort of get get meta about it and ask ourselves, well, what does this really mean? There's this terrible um, fear that we'll do it wrong. And Mm -hmm. I wish... I wish I could just put a sticker on every one of my books that says there is no wrong way to read this book except maybe upside down. Other than that <laughs> other than that it is yours. Make it make it yours. We just I think maybe we don't we haven't typically had enough of that permission in our culture and I think it it bleeds over into all kinds of ways that we've we've lost making we've lost sort of permission to make uh engagement with process in our culture I grew up in a culture where everybody made their own music every I mean maybe not everybody there were those famous tone tone deaf people that you you know you didn't really want to hear them in church but um front porch music was a, a regular thing you know and around the fire music and um Because I I grew up, you know, in a rural, and I live in a rural Appalachian culture. We're a land-based culture, and we still make things here. But as as we've become more and more urbanized, you know, as a species, we've delegated making and um, almost sort of demeaned making and I think it's a, a, a double problem. It's 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 sort of denigrated, you know, the people who make rather than, as opposed to the people who use. But there's also an insecurity. Like I, I buy music. I don't, you know, I don't make it myself. Um, um, so I think that's all, that's all germane here, isn't it? It all has. It all goes to sort of why we're afraid to take a poem and make something out of it ourselves.
2: Yeah, and I'll just, uh, before we move on, I'll just flag the fact that, um, that for me anyway, your comment about the, the kind of kaleidoscopic wonder of many minds intersecting many texts and coming up with many meanings, gets scrunched by the fear of diversity that is so yeah. strong among us these days. So yes, what you're saying reaches out in every direction including political, to say the obvious.
0: Yeah, the, the idea that a poem has open spaces to it. You know, like, I loved your phrase that it's half done when the artist, when you send it to the publisher, a song is half done, that it lands in someone's heart, and, and then they do with it what they will. And, you know, I've had to have those kind of emails, too. It's like, okay, you know, what does that verse mean? Who's the person in that verse, you know? <laughs> and, you know, is this about this or this? And the answer is yes. Yes. Yes
1: and. <laughs> <laughs> yes to all. Yes to all. Yeah. Yeah. And you're responsible for it. If, I mean, if, if it's about your ex-boyfriend, that's on you, you know, don't, don't, don't blame me. <laughs> right. Sorry. And, and the, the idea too, that
0: that's... in your, in these poems, um, there is so much human-sized imagery in this. I mean, it's very earthy stuff and, um, you know, the, the details and the imagery and the, it's close up and, Sometimes it's just delightful and sometimes it's gritty and sometimes it's just kind of like, huh, I just have to sit with that for a moment, you know, which is kind of a great hallmark for a poem. Um, you know, all those open spaces, but these, these really, con- at the same time, these really concrete images and um,
1: human-sized access points. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, human size is kind of what I do, you know, um, I, I, uh, even, or especially as a novelist, I've just always been interested in, in, um, what passes for ordinary and how nothing really is ordinary. And, 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 you know, of course, as a female artist, um, well, we're we're expected to do the domestic thing, right? As a matter of fact, we you know if we if we if we get too far outside of the domestic thing, we get accused of ambition, and that's of course um, oh, that's that. that's deadly. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> deadly for, for a female. It's great if you're male, but if if it's if you're female, that's an accusation. But um, but uh, and you know, I mean, I, I I what I find is the domestic. Uh, is also a great ambition. Um, there are mm. there are worlds um, there yeah. are worlds in a teacup. there are just between people, between generations in a household. there are a million strands to unravel. Um, and that's really as the animals that we are, it's the only way we're really wired to understand the world is one on one. And it's why we have so much trouble believing in things like climate change. Um I, I mean that I, I blame our biology for that. It's just we're we have, you know, millennia of, of evolution and conditioning that has made us very astute about people very good at deciding are you are you with me or against me are you in my tribe or not Um, you know those are the kinds of decisions that were honed in our in most of our existence because our our survival depended upon them and also not just animosity but also love also affection we've survived and prospered because of our sociality so these things relationships you know the so-called domestic uh domain that's what we really get the best that's what we understand the best and what we feel the most intensely i mean you know regardless of gender it's just what we it's just how we work so for me as an artist the great challenge and the wonderful fun of it all is to Take the big things that keep me awake at night, like you know, like climate, like climate change, like war, like like life and death, and 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 injustice. Take the big things and try to find a way to tell a story that will enclose that drama in so, in a in a story the size of the human heart. Yeah. Um, yes, that's mm-hmm. um, that's that's the artist's challenge.
2: And I think that that takes us back to poetry, for me anyway. A good poem for me is a microcosm through which you can see the macrocosm in a kind mm-hmm. of holographic manner.
0: Yeah. And,
2: and I so often want to say to the people I work with, if you're willing to pay close attention to these 14 lines and explore them in this group so that we listen to different minds opening them up in different ways, you're going to start to see a hologram that will make sense to you of something much larger than that, you'll you'll see through that microcosm, that grain of sand, uh, into the story of the universe in one way or another. And I feel yeah. like the, I feel like that about I thought what you just said, Barbara, is so touching and true about the the ecology of the family, for example. Yeah. To understand that deeply and well, it's very complicated, and and it's it's often contended. Um, and if we were to understand that better, we'd understand. Some much larger ecosystems, uh, more empathetically as well. I think,
0: and I think too. You know, like the, the your your love and delight and kind of cherishing of the absolutely ordinary. I, they're all over this book. Is you know references to knitting. Yeah, <laughs> and, and knitting. Mm-hmm. What is more? What is more? There's something so beautiful and, and and the metaphor of knitting you, know, you have two sticks and a, and you know a strand of yarn and stitch by stitch you can't knit fast I mean you can you know there are people who knit a little faster than others but it's not a process that can be hurried it, you know you can
1: only do it one stitch at a time and with those two sticks and that string you can make anything anything that's <laughs> Really anything, um, not not a internal combustion engine, but any, well, you probably could. It wouldn't run. Yeah. But um, there are knitters who could do that. Yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> there are. Um, but it's like it's it, it. You make dimensions. You can make three dimensional objects, and it's uh, yeah, it's like a 3D printer in super slow mo, and it's it's very meditative. But it's um, yeah, we were talking before about make. And how you know, as we've as as we've urbanized and sort of delegated the processes and the making of all of the things we've used, I think you know, starting in the middle of the last century, it fell out of favor. Um, I think that's another thing that I really appreciate about my millennial daughters and their generation is that making is coming back around, yeah, um, I and I love uh, I love all of these young uh young knitters and young makers and crafters and you know the sort of the whole Etsy uh revolution and how um you know it's cool again to make because as you say it's um it's metaphorical and it's also um practical and it's a way of grounding your hopes and your cares about another person um you know to knit them a sweater in fact i i have one of my poems is 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 about prayer knitting as prayer which for me it really is um i love knitting for so many reasons and i and as you mentioned we're we're knitting we're knitting sisters actually you're my knitting mother uh (laughs) to, to be to be technical about it i um I sort of taught myself to knit as a kid, but I didn't really go anywhere with it. And then I had um, a, a pretty terrible accident, and I was I was laid up in, uh, in I was bedridden for several months. And Carrie sent me knitting needles, and I just knit my I knit my way out of you know one of the, the darkest places I've ever been, and um, just never stopped. Um, it was it was kind of a miracle. But you've taken
0: it so much farther. Oh my gosh, I'm still uh, <laughs> throwing, you know, my socks in the purse and so I can t- travel with it anywhere. And and now you have sheep and you shear your own sheep. And you have, I mean, I'm just I'm saying, you know.
1: I got carried away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's amazing. It's like utterly
0: amazing and beautiful. But I, and I love that it shows up in the poems because obviously it, it does something really, this making. This kind, you know, Mm -hmm. you're a maker in terms of words and language and poetry and story. But you're also a maker of hand-knit socks and of a garden. And I I think I was sitting in an airport and I was reading Animal Vegetable Miracle. And you said something about the best hugs I've ever given and received were in oven mitts. And I just (laughs) started crying right there in the airport. People started backing away. Um, um <laughs> but this idea of the honorableness the holiness the joy and fun of making and and you know that shows up all over in this book and I think in in your work and in your life and it is fun with the, with the millennials to see that this making is coming back One of the uh, workshops I love to do is writing a song with a group of people who who have who say I, I don't do any music. I'm not a musical person Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. like going into a, you know, natural resources class and writing a poem or a song with them. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, oh, I don't have to be a professional. Right. I can just sing. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's more than okay. It's kind of, it's kind of like glorious So, you know, I really loved what you were saying about the, the next generation is showing up. Well, showing up. They're showing up in really interesting and glorious ways, but they're also showing up making again, which yep. is so
1: hopeful. Yeah, honoring honoring process and and taking taking pride in it, um, and and just feeling grounded. And for 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 me, one of the. I mean, I I, I like the socks, you know. I like the sweaters, but I also rely on knitting as a kind of as a as not a kind of as meditation yeah. um it stops the words in my head which really need to stop sometimes <laughs> it's a good relief it's the same with gardening it's really when um so much of my work is completely cerebral um i i could i could do it without a body you know i just i do need to type but that's all and if if I didn't have these other things calling me, mainly a family that wants to eat, but also you know these sheep and this garden and this this very earthy world, um, I would just sit at this desk right here and 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 keep writing until you know somebody came in and found my skeleton you know <laughs> draped over draped over the keyboard because that's how it, it you know it, I just get so. Into especially especially with novels, admittedly that's a bit of a different process, and and that's really mostly what I do. You know, you invent this whole other world, and then you go and live in it, and people are talking to you all the all day long, and and you can't wait to see what they do next, and you know, and they give people drugs for this. This is not, um, (laughs) you know, it's 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 kind of a really other way to be human, and um, and so I think I am saved. By you know the, the yin and the yang of my life to have these other things that the call to me so that at the end of my work day I can close my computer and I can go um, you know plant beans or go and deliver a lamb or I can knit a sweater or take care of my one year old grandson reengaging in the processes that that life is really made of is you know of course going to make me a better writer i couldn't i always tell i've always told my kids that i think writing makes has made me a better mother and i know that being a mother has made me a better writer yeah. because um i know what the rest of the world is doing with their days um it's so so important as, to me as an artist not to live separately from the world
2: yeah Well, before we get too far from this, what for me is a really important discussion about knitting, um, I want to testify because, and I wish we could do this on video, Carrie. So I am holding in my hands a pair of knitted fingerless gloves that Carrie Mm -hmm. made for me (laughs) so that I can do my early morning typing here in cold weather country of Wisconsin and be warm and cozy at the same time. And I come in my office every morning and I put on these gloves now that it's November or December. And um, gosh, it just feels like home, you know. And I'm so grateful for this these simple gifts because it is a gift to be simple. And um, these mean a lot to me. I think when you gave me, this is the second pair she's made for me. And I think when you gave me my first pair, I thought... Okay, that means we're really friends. <laughs> oh, it does. It does.
1: Because a knitted gift is a gift. You know, that is a thousand thousands and thousands of stitches. It's a lot of hours. What I'm saying is that when someone gives you a knitted gift, it means they really love you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it kind of is true and mm-hmm. like you I, I it's meditative and I put prayer it's like they're like I call them my prayer gloves or my prayer socks mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because you kind mm-hmm. of like put that spirit uh, into it thinking oh I'm making this for my daughter and every stitch there's a there's a a, a spirit you put into it oh
1: yes, yeah, and so- an intention yeah, yeah. it is it's a, it's a it's a it's a really active form of prayer exactly
0: well uh, you know I also I know we're getting closer to the end of the program, and one of the things I also want to kind of lift up is a sense of, uh, in in these poems and in your writing, there's also also this sense of you, you don't blink the hard stuff, hard things happen in in your your stories and in your poems, and at the same time, there's this sense of hope, a sense of like in the first poem, all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, that there is a rightness to it. That particular poem, there's a perspective that you you could not have written that poem when you were thirty-five. It wasn't time right. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was it was time to write other things at thirty-five. Yeah, that were you know also incredibly valuable. But but that was a poem that was written now because of the experiences you've had in your life and. But all through it, like I said, you never blink, blink the hard stuff. But at the same time, there's this sense of the cycles of things, the patterns of things, particularly in the natural world, and what we can take from that, the hope we can take from that, the wisdom we can take from that, the the patterns that happen in families that, that are life-giving and, um, and hopeful. You're taking care of your grandson... You've always done such a wonderful presentation of the both and in your work, and I, I've always appreciated it. it. It didn't, it felt like human and real. and And I know there's a poem in the book called "How to Be Hopeful." It's a it's a shorter poem, but it's just wonderful. Would Would you mind reading that
1: one as well? Well, sure, I would love to. Um,
2: I love that poem too. Just let me
1: find it. Here it is. Yeah, um, you, you know, if people ask me a lot about hope. I end up talking about it a lot when I talk public publicly because, you know, people want it and uh, and and they and they feel they don't have it. And what I always say is, hope is not something you have that you're just born with, you know, like blue eyes or good hair or something. It's something, it's, it's what you make. I mean, it's just all getting back to making. Um, It's, it's something you decide and then you do and you get up every morning and you make hope uh, again out of whatever you can muster uh, that day and you see how far it can take you. And it will probably, you'll run out of it at the end of the day and the next day, you just put it on again with your shoes. You just do it. Um, That seems to come as a revelation to people, which always surprises me, because I guess I was raised that way. If you're worried about something, you do something. That's what you do with your worry. Worry is an engine. Um, And so I wrote this poem um, to that effect, um, How to Be Hopeful. Look, you might as well know This device is going to take endless repair. Rubber cement, rubber bands, tapioca, the square of the hypotenuse, 19th century novels, sunrise, any of these could be useful. Also feathers. The ignition is tricky. Sometimes you have to stand on an incline where things look possible or a line you drew yourself or the grocery line, making faces at a toddler secretly over his mother's shoulder. You may have to pop the clutch and run past the evidence, past everyone who is praying for you. Passing all previous records is okay, or passing strange, just not passing it up. Or park it and fly by the seat of your pants, with nothing in the bank, you will still want to take the express. Tiptoe past the dogs of the apocalypse, asleep in the shade of your future. Pay at the window. You'll be surprised. You can pass off hope like a bad check. You still have time, that's the thing, to make it good. <laughs>
2: ah. I love it. I love the little nod to Emily Dickinson. That's wonderful.
1: Hope is the thing with feathers. It's the thing that just it's it perches on the soul and sings and sings. It's um, it's the story you tell. I feel it's. I appreciate Carrie what you said about hope because, I if I had to really boil it down, I think hope is my profession. I think that's my job. Yeah. Um, I've always felt that the difference between all is lost and this might turn out okay the difference between those two places is a good story yes um you just you you just you just got to make a good story yeah. it's it doesn't mean that you lie it means you take the facts at hand and figure out the best possible ending um i oh, there's this uh albert camus said um Where there is no hope, it's incumbent on us to invent it. Um, And that's what I do. Um, I invent hope. It's a renewable option. You know, you just keep doing it. And it's really the greatest thing about being a novelist is it's the only part of my life where I can control the outcome. Um, So I want to do that, and I want to give that to other people. make it good
0: I love that my vocation is creating hope and creating hope through the avenue of a good story that's really truly beautiful and I I do resonate so much with what you're saying about um, that hope is an action it's a daily you know and and there are days when it's really hard and so there are times when you have to give it to somebody else to carry for a few hours and -hmm. then pick it up again but we, but it doesn't run out. I mean, you, you can you can always you can always make more. You can make more, and yeah, it is a renewable resource. I, I, I love it that. It is. Um, yes. Yeah, so thank you for reading that poem. What a wonderful way to close. Over. I'm so sorry. I'm loving this conversation so much. I'm so sorry that we're we're getting to the to our
1: our closing time. Um, I know, I know, and I just I want to sit in that chair in your house and and, <laughs> and in you your office, Parker, and just and just talk. Uh, it's 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 really been lovely to um, to talk with you. Both. Thank you
2: so much, and and you've just landed us in a place of, I think, real affirmation for us because on the growing edge, we have our own little definition of hope. We say, hope is holding a creative tension between what is and what could and should be each day doing something to narrow the distance between the two and so we're very much with you on those small steps that you put on you take with after you put your shoes on and and breathe a breath of hope every every morning thank you so much barbara thank you You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer.
0: Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode.
2: And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too.
0: And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation.
2: All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change.
0: And wild appreciation to Allison Quance for creative envisioning, direction, and production, because she's Princess Leia, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and just the wonders of the universe all in one person. There you go.